Good morning. It's Thursday, the 27th of July, and I'm Govind Raj Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai, the most dug up and, of course, the most rocking city in the world. Our top stories and themes: the stock markets resume their run, Tech Mahindra surprises, and why buybacks indeed. Upgrades and downgrades of company performances. What's the final score looking like? How falling wholesale price inflation is bringing down prices of goods that we buy. Rice prices rise globally after India's top export of non-basmati rice. And hmm, if you missed getting mangoes from Ratnagiri this year, you could get them from Italy. Yes, Italian mangoes. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. The stock markets resume their run. After a pause and some minor anxiety here and there thanks primarily to a 1216 point fall over the last 3 days the stock markets rose again yesterday in trade having established of course that you cannot assume in life that things will keep going up all the time the bse sensex closed 351 points up yesterday at 66707 the nifty 50 closed up 98 points at 19778 now elsewhere on wall street The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose from the 11th straight session on Monday to make it the longest winning streak since February 2017. Interestingly, it is not the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite which has led the market in the first half of the year, but the more non-tech stocks like energy, healthcare and even banks. Back in India, results season is on full swing as you know. IT services company Tech Mahindra's results were a bit of a surprise. Tech Mahindra saw revenue go down about 4% to 13,159 crores but net profit declined almost 37% to 703 crore rupees. CP Gurnani CEO of Tech Mahindra said that this was one of the toughest quarters he had seen. He also said that while the drop could have been anticipated some of the macroeconomic headwinds and stretchy deal making have impacted our earnings something that many analysts have been saying and is something also that we should be watching out as far as tech companies go in the coming year meanwhile as you know in the non tech space lnt or lasen and tubro the engineering and construction major announced a 10000 crore rupee buyback of shares on tuesday this has also made it one of the largest buybacks for a non it company incidentally lnt's net profits for the first quarter of this year were about 46% up compared to the same period last year and the company was sitting on reserves and surplus of over 88000 crores in the last year's balance sheet now the last major non it buyback was reliance industries which announced a buyback worth about 10400 crores but that was a decade ago the big and mostly it ones are tcs or tata consultancy services at about 18000 crore infosys and wipro with about 13000 and 12000 crore each respectively website money control quoting prime databases TCS has bought back shares worth 66000 crore rupees between 2017 and 22. So what explains a buyback from a manufacturing company like LNT which has authorized itself to buy up to 33 million shares for a maximum price of up to 3000 rupees per share. By the way LNT tried to do a buyback a few years ago but its application was rejected by the regulator. So How should investors in general view buybacks at a time like this which obviously means that among other things companies are doing well and sitting on pots of money for which they don't have much use otherwise Anyway I reached out to veteran market analyst Ambarish Balega and I began by asking him to define a buyback and why a company like L&T would go for it and more importantly whether other companies who are also equally cash rich could follow 
Now, buyback basically means uh, that the company buys back these shares and they extinguish it. So by doing that, the paid-up equity capital of the company comes down. And uh, going ahead, assuming that the profitability remains the same, the earnings per share goes up, which is actually wealth equitative for the remaining shareholders were there. Understood. So now, why did or why would an LNT specifically do a buyback? So basically, any company which is sitting on a huge amount of cash and they don't have any immediate requirement for that cash in the sense for CAPEX or for their operations, it actually makes sense in buying back the shares and improving the value for the remaining shareholders. It is more like a dividend paid out. But in this case, when you pay it out, you're actually buying back the shares and reducing the share capital. So would that also mean in some ways that LNT does not have any real, let's say, expansion or growth ahead of it? No, I mean, this actually means that uh, they have more cash than they require. For example, right now, LNT is sitting on cash and cash equivalents of about 53,000 crores. Now, this buyback is just about 10,000 crores. So that leaves them with still 43,000 crores for possibly dividends going ahead, as well as any expansion plans which they have. Or at least the equity part of it. Absolutely. So would that mean that companies, therefore, in a very general sense, have been doing, or at least some companies have been doing so well or, or pretty well that they can actually do buybacks of this nature? Absolutely. I mean, if you're talking of the technology companies, I mean, so many of the IT companies have been doing buybacks on a very regular basis. Whether you talk of Infosys or a Wipro or a TCS, I mean, all of them have been doing that buyback. So this also actually improves return on uh, capital return on investment overall because you're not keeping your cash idle. End of the day, it's being utilized for something. So as a shareholder, is that a friendly move or how friendly is it compared to any other thing that a company might do? No, this is a friendly move, no doubt, because uh, see, the going price, uh, the market price for LNT before the announcement of this buyback was closer to about 2,600. It's uh, thereabouts even as of now. And it's being bought back at 10% higher. So clearly, there is a better return for the shareholders who are tendering the shares for buyback. But then at the same time, let me just remind you that the market cap of LNT is about 4 lakh crores. The buyback is 10,000 crores. Stand alone, the figure looks big. But then this finally means that only about 2.5% of your shareholding is being bought back. So if you are having 100 shares, about three shares or two shares of yours will be bought back. But at the same time, there is a divide between the retail and the rest of them. So the retail is defined as someone who is holding up to 2 lakhs worth of shares. Not face value, but market value as of the record date. So that works out to about close to, if, if I assume that the market rate will be about closer to about 2,800, 2,900 on the record date, it should work out to closer to about 65 shares or so. So anyone holding less than 65 shares has that 1,500 crores of quota under which that buyback will happen. So the expected sort of a buyback for retail will surely be much higher than this 2.5-3%. Okay, so more of them will be able to sell their shares in the retail segment as opposed to institutional. Absolutely. Okay, but I think that 10,000 crore to 4 lakh crore is an important thing to keep in mind. So therefore, it works more sentimentally speaking or sent, you know, from a sentiment point of view rather than... Yes. 
Okay. And yet not many companies do it. Only Reliance has uh, attempted it in the non-IT space and now it's uh, L&T in that scale, isn't it? Absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, no one really has or sits on that much of huge amount of cash and they don't have any profitable means of deploying it. It's only those companies who do it. Right. Last question, Amrish. So as you look ahead and around uh, the balance sheets of companies who've been sitting on a lot of cash and who are sitting on a lot of cash, do you think others could follow or should follow for that matter? No, I mean, see, they should follow in case they really don't have uh, any means of deploying that cash profitably in growing their business. Then instead of keeping cash idle, when I say idle, it's normally in liquid funds or bag FDs. It doesn't make sense. I mean, spoiling shareholder value. So it's better to do a buyback, reduce your equity capital, improve the EPS uh, per share, and because of which the total valuation of the company would go up. Right, Ambarish. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Rice prices are skyrocketing. Earlier in the week, we spoke to B.V. Krishna Rao, the president of the Rice Exporters Association, who told us that he hoped India would increase export duties on rice, as we did with a 20% duty in September last year, as opposed to banning it totally. That plea is presumably doing the rounds and being digested. Meanwhile, India's ban on non-Basmati rice exports is beginning to squeeze the global markets. Bloomberg is reporting that rice prices in Asia jumped to the highest level in more than three years. Thai white rice, 5% broken, considered an Asian benchmark, was up to $572 a ton, the highest in three years, and up 7% in two weeks. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting that global rice importers are likely to seek direct deals with governments in exporting countries. The current ban excludes government-to-government sales, and it remains within the government's prerogative. B.V. Krishna Rao, president of the Rice Exporters Association, who we spoke to earlier, told Reuters, Meanwhile, pressure from importers in the United States catering to more likely panicked NRIs is likely to mount. More on that soon. Linking falling wholesale inflation to lower prices and better corporate performance. We usually talk of consumer price inflation or CPI because that is what usually affects us being linked to things we buy almost on a daily basis, including food items, vegetables and the like. And inflation or CPI is now rising and set to rise further going by projections and what we've been discussing here on The Core Report. Wholesale price inflation, something that we've not discussed much, on the other hand, is falling. It is at minus 4.1% for June 2023 as compared to plus 4.8% for CPI or retail inflation for the same month. Now, what does this mean? It means that prices of commodities, metals and goods linked to these are coming down. So these are things you may not be buying every day. So we are talking about goods. Now, goods in turn has a 34% weightage in the retail inflation basket, compared with about 39% for food and 27% for services. In the last few days, when we've been talking about rising prices of cereals and pulses and vegetables, we've been talking about this 39% in the inflation basket, as it's known. But if you look at the goods component, in that same retail or CPI inflation basket, it is now at 4.8% compared to 12.2% last year. So I'm referring to the goods part of it, not its composition in the basket. So if wholesale inflation is down, what can we take away from it for now or later? Some interesting aspects, of course, for companies and individual consumers like you and me. To understand more, I reached out to DK Joshi, Chief Economist at rating agency Crystal, who's just put together a report that looks at falling consumer price inflation, 
easing goods consumer price inflation or the goods component of retail inflation and significantly corporate margins, which of course links to some, if not a fair part of the bull run that we've seen. I began by asking him to define WPI for us and the impact of its lower levels right now. Well, I think wholesale price uh, index-based inflation, as the name suggests, is inflation in the wholesale market. Uh, And WPI typically covers goods. It doesn't cover services, unlike consumer price index. Now, uh, we are at a point in time where the WPI is falling very fast, WPI inflation, whereas the CPI inflation is kind of picking up. Now, it has a couple of implications. Number one is the fact that the input costs are becoming cheaper. The companies are passing it on to the end consumer. This is clearly visible in the retail goods part of consumer price index inflation, which was close to 12.2% in June last year. That has fallen to 4.8%. So clearly, the fall in input costs reflected in WPI have been transmitted to the consumers as well. The second, I think, is uh, what happens to the producers. Now, producers, when the input costs fall, their profit margins go up. We've looked at the data for the last decade, and what we find is that whenever the wholesale price index-based inflation has touched the negative territory, I think the profit margins of companies go up. And same thing is playing out uh, right now as well. The profit margin in the last quarter and even in this quarter, are are pretty strong. And I think part of that is because input costs have gone down. And you would say that this is almost a fixed correlation between WPI and profit margins? Yes, I think at least in the three episodes uh, that we have seen of uh, negative WPI inflation in the last decade, I think every time it has played out. And this would mean mostly, I'm assuming, companies which are consuming metals and... Absolutely. I think the companies which are producing metals, etc., they may not be in very good uh, health, but the users of those inputs are definitely benefiting. And there has been a pretty sharp drop in the cost of metals. And also, I think even the supply chain pressures have eased. There is a spare supply chain capacity globally right now. So all that is helping lower the input costs for, uh, for producers. Okay. So now we've also talked about how Things have been moving on the retail side, which is uh, consumer price inflation. Uh, We've talked about how prices of uh, pulses and pulses inflation has gone up. Cereals inflation has gone up. Uh, Vegetable prices have gone up. So almost everything in that basket has gone up, obviously hurting households. So I don't know if you want to give an update on that side, the retail side. And more importantly, what does this basket look like now? Because obviously the goods is something that I'm not buying frequently or I'm buying only on a discretionary basis. Whereas on the other side, when it comes to food items, I'm consuming them all the time. No, you are absolutely right. I think the goods part of consumer price index has about 34% weight in the overall basket. And these are stuff that you don't consume on a regular basis. But where the recon is faster, it is in food and also in services. I think services are consumed more regularly than goods. And the food has about 40% weight in consumer basket and about 27% weight is of services. Now, these are currently under pressure. So the items that you consume on a regular basis are under pressure and they have a higher weight. So I think they will lift the overall consumer price inflation, which is happening currently. And uh, in July, I think the CPI inflation is expected to go up even further, I think from 48 in June. 
so clearly uh, the demand pressure uh, is uh, is playing out as far as the the services are concerned because there's a very strong rebound and uh, for food the monsoons are the threat right now and possibly i think the el nino if it plays out it can create drier conditions later on so you need to keep your fingers crossed on the on the food inflation side so very broadly speaking and maybe looking at past data or past behavior as well so as wpi stays low or could go further low if let's say global uh, oil or commodity prices come down further what could be the overall impact of this on economic growth well i think it one wpi is a deflator for gdp so you compute nominal gdp and deflate it by wpi wpi plus cpi combination when the prices fall i think it gives a statistical boost to real gdp so that is one apart from that i think from producers point of view i think we are right now at a pretty healthy pace of growth which is expected to slow down in the second half of the fiscal year so the revenues of the companies will go down so it will be difficult for them to maintain their profits because they will have to cut their prices uh, to to compete in the market that is on the producer side uh, so their profit margins may not stay as strong as they look right now going ahead and then i think for from the consumer side he will benefit because companies in order to compete will have to cut prices so i think that's how it's good for consumption of goods i would say right and that's always a happy note to end on thank you so much mr dk joshi upgrades and downgrades of company performances what's the final score We are at that stage in the market and economy where we are grappling with mixed signals. Perhaps that is more often the case than not. Broadly, companies are doing well, including because input prices are falling as we just discussed. The higher margins, earnings and profits which companies are reporting is what is giving many brokerages, including all the international names like Goldman Sachs, the confidence that the stock market will have a lot of legs left as the second half of this year progresses. On the other hand, there are headwinds. The US and eurozone are slowing down export oriented industries including software are feeling the pressure as we just saw again and will not be able to pull another rabbit out of the hat as they perhaps did in the latest quarter at least not that easily what does the past tell us stock brokerage icici securities looked at aggregate profit pool of some 600 stocks and analyst estimates and saw that the projected profit pool presently stands at around 12.75 trillion rupees versus 13.3 trillion rupees a year ago so you can see that the profit pool being projected is lower this 4% downgrade icici securities says is actually reasonable given the many crises that have hit world economies like the russia ukraine war according to icici a bulk of the earnings upgrades in the last one year have been related to domestic cyclical demand including financials consumer discretionary auto tobacco and industrials apart from a new entrant internet stocks something i have not personally paid much attention to but maybe i will later on the other hand the bulk of downgrades was driven by stocks relating to defensives like it commodities cement and healthcare interestingly metals reliance yes reliance telecom healthcare and it are responsible for a bulk of the aggregate profit after tax or profit downgrades while the bfsi that's the banking and financial services sector has driven a bulk of the upgrades in the prospective 24 earnings estimates over the past one year so if you've been following all this it's a mixed bag but how mixed is it and what can be gleaned by looking at the data that companies are putting out and pretty much everyone is breaking their head over 
I caught up with Vinod Karki, equity strategist at ICICI Securities, and I began by asking him to define the methodology and approach to this upgrade and downgrade universe, and more importantly, where it was all landing. So the basic idea was to see how is the street over the last year revised their earnings, basically, for the top 600 companies. That was the idea. So in June of uh, last year, the street was for the 600 companies saying that in FY24, the profit pool of the 600 companies would be 13.3 trillion. Now, when we look at the same 600 companies numbers right now, the number has fallen to 12.75. So that's what you said by, you know, the 4% downgrade to the aggregate profit pool. Now, we have seen in the past that when the downgrade cycles are there, the downgrades are significant. They are not only 4%. And given what we have seen over the last one year, severe uh, demand shocks and impacts globally, 4% is not a big deal according to us. But what is more interesting that we saw when we broke up the sectors is that bulk of whatever upgrades we have seen within this downgrade is domestic cyclicals and some of these internet stock that we have got listed over the last couple of years. Whereas the downgrades from the typical what you call as the defensive sectors, which are IT, healthcare, and some of the staples companies, along with global commodities and even the domestic commodities like cement. So metal and cement, we saw the most downgrades, basically. So this is what we found. Okay. So if we were to pick up downgrades first, you said IT, healthcare, cement, metals. Now, IT is clearly facing westward and uh, Eurozone in North America. What about healthcare? Why is that you feel on a downgrade? So healthcare, if you observe these companies, they have been consistently been saying that the margin pressures are constantly there in uh, uh, some of these developed markets where they're getting squeezed on margins. And you have seen a lot of these US FDA inspections again across companies. We have seen those coming in, which eventually gets into delays for the product launches. So I think that price erosion in developed markets and some of these uh, observations and other things which delay prospects for drug approvals for some of these healthcare companies have, I think, primarily been the reason for And Reliance is also, I mean, you've said metals, Reliance, telecom, healthcare, and IT. So Reliance, you almost uh, mentioned it like a category in itself. Yeah, so Reliance is a huge company. I mean, it's a sector by itself. We don't even know which sector it is in, basically. So obviously, we saw most of these commodity companies see uh, massive downgrades. So I think that has um, had a play on companies like the lands, you saw the gross refining margins and even the energy prices having an issue. So I think uh, metals, we saw huge price erosion and margin compression. Broadly, if you observe it, these global facing companies, be global commodities and global demand, IT, healthcare, those kind of things showing downward revisions. Along with some of these commodity users like cement, which got an impact. They were not, from a demand perspective, impacted. They were impacted from a high input cost perspective, actually. That impacted them. And uh, let's quickly cover the upgrades as well. And the next question would obviously be that could all of this flip around in the next six months or so? So the one thing that we have been highlighting for quite some time over the last year or so is that the CAPEX cycle 
is picking up in India. So the CAPEX is being driven by the government CAPEX, the real estate cycle. Now the corporates also picking up. And that has an impact on manufacturing activity. And that has an impact on corporate leveraging effect. So I think these are the factors which are conducive for domestic cyclical, even the discretionary consumption broadly. I mean, you have seen time and again that investment cycle has almost a two and a half times multiplier effect on aggregate demand if it comes by. And largely it's discretionary to that extent. So I think this momentum that we've seen over the last year that domestic cyclicals have seen upgrades, I don't see any reason why they should falter given how the demand in the economy is being driven by these sectors, as we speak. While the outlook for some of these global stories or global demand continues to be a little murky, if you keep talking about what will happen. So the debate is going on whether the US will get into a recession, soft landing or a deep recession that keeps going on. And Europe, as you know, is again a weak case. And China, again, is not looking too good from a demand perspective. So the global outlook is the most uncertain, I would say, at this point in time. The most certain and what we are seeing that foreigners are getting even more excited than us is about the domestic story about India, the law of the domestic growth demand story. This earnings upgrade momentum in these sectors, I don't see why they should crack in the immediate term. Got it. Um, Vinod, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Govin. Thanks for having me. Hmm, mangoes from Italy. Climate change is driving up temperatures in many parts of the world, as we can see right now. Farmers in India are having a tough time coping with delayed monsoons, high-intensity rains and heat waves, among other problems. Their brethren across the world are also shifting crop patterns around, trying to make the most of this changing climate. The Wall Street Journal reports in a detailed feature on impact of climate change on farming that in southern Italy, farmers are now growing tropical fruit such as mangoes. The cultivation of fruits such as bananas, mangoes and avocados has increased threefold in Italy in the last five years and now covers some 1,200 hectares of farmland in Italy's southernmost regions of Sicily, Calabria and Puglia, the Wall Street Journal quotes experts. Now in northern Italy, the warmer weather has apparently enabled the large-scale production of tomatoes and olive oil, crops that until 15 years ago were a preserve of the peninsula's central and southern regions the WSJ says. An increase of 1 or 1.5 degrees Celsius means we can now cultivate things such as wheat in northern Italy. But if the rise in temperature is followed by heavy rains and hailstorms, that becomes a lot more complicated, an expert told WSJ, adding that adapting to climate change isn't so simple. On that note, that's it for me for today. Have a great day ahead and do write in with your feedback or subscribe to us at www.thecore.in. It's free. And thank you once again for bringing us to the top 100 among all podcasts in India. Bye for now and see you tomorrow. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is 
www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.